0: Welcome to the Way of the Disciple book study brought to you by Sushipe. Our reflection on chapter six, titled The Abandoned Pitcher, will be led by Zach Krieger from Sioux Falls, South Dakota.
1: Okay, we're looking at the sixth chapter this week. In the Way of the Disciple, we're kind of approaching the end of the book. Um, we have a particularly kind of powerful chapter that talks about uh conversion, um, once again, kind of this disposition of the disciple. And so we're looking at, uh, from the fourth chapter of John, the account of the woman at the well. And there's a lot of stuff uh, that attaches to this image. So this one, uh, the idea of wells is all over scripture. And the more you look at things that take place next to a well or things that like talk about well springs, the more we can kind of add on to this image. And this is where I think Erasmo is getting, uh, once again, first name basis at this point, where Erasmo is getting a lot of his... Um, a lot of his material for this chapter, and uh, can help uh, help add on to our own meditation. So. Um, First off, I want to start a quote uh start with a quote from a different book from uh Jean Carbon. So Jean Carbon is one of the primary authors of the fourth uh part of the Catechism on Prayer. And his kind of classical famous book is called The Wellspring of Worship and he opens with this paragraph that I think fits so well into uh what we're reading this week in Way of the disciple He says, Men thirst and look for water wherever they think they'll find it. As they wander without any horizon in sight, no way of escape, they dig a well each time they pitch their tent. The wonderful thing is that the history of their salvation always begins with the digging of a well. We find the patriarchs constantly digging wells. We ourselves are these patriarchs, traversing a promised land as strangers in our own inheritance. Beside their wells, they also build altars to their gods, their religion, their ideology, their money, their power. Men are thirsty. How could they fail to dig where they think they may find water? So there's this idea that that we're constantly building wells we're trying to tap into whatever fascinates us and we're trying to dig deep to see like what's underneath the surface and what can i drink from this right we're just we're thirsty for truth we're we're like attracted to happiness it's built into our instinct, like um you know food is in like a wolf pack or something like that, like animals that are just bound to their senses or whatever. We we have a natural disposition that's, that's pointed towards happiness and that ultimate happiness can be found in truth. And, uh, and the reason is that satisfies most of our desires. Like if we think about it, um, you know, we could be, Wanting health like we want health we want stuff like that and we could be maybe sick and we're waiting on a diagnosis To see if we're seriously sick or not, but the thing that's even worse than dealing with the serious sickness is dealing with the unknown Right. What am I sick with? What do I have to do To be healthy? Will this thing work like it's the truth behind the thing that's actually going to satisfy us more. So I don't mean happiness in the way of like, uh, emotional joy or something like that. I mean like the deep seated joy that allows us to even weather sadness, emotional sadness, because we have a a deep sense of satisfaction in something. And so I think that's what um, that's the significance that John Carbone is adding to this image of the well uh, that we have the patriarchs constantly digging these wells and setting up camp because they're living in the promised land wherever they set up camp. There's the hope that the promise that God gave to Abraham, the first patriarch, is going to be fulfilled in them right here and right now. And so the well that they're sitting by in John 4 is, is Jacob's well, right? It's one of the patriarch's actual wells. And uh, there's so many details in the story. You know, some of them are really famous details, like the fact that she's coming in the heat of the day when no one else is there, which shows that she's been ostracized. Um, And, uh, you know, she's a Samaritan and the Samaritans, they're historic enemies of the Israelites ever since the dividing of the kingdom. And then the fall of the northern tribes that eventually became the Samaritans and all that stuff. There's this cultural animosity. There's all these details that add significance to it. But the idea that they're sitting at one of these wells where she's thirsty and where Jesus is thirsty and their mutual thirst meets uh, at this one particular place and that Jesus is able to, uh, in the words of um of Merikakis where he's able to exercise the demons of her sins through this conversation uh, is, is really where discipleship comes into play with this big idea um, or this big theme, I guess is the better word in the Bible. So um, the, f- the first point about uh, this passage on top of all that kind of background that Erasmus is making, is on page 102, um, Jesus is exhausted himself. He's exhausted himself in the pursuit of this particular soul, all right? So his exhaustion leads him to the well where he needs a drink, which is a really human thing. So he's made himself weak and vulnerable before approaching a weak and vulnerable human. Uh, And this kind of taps into the story of Jacob as well, uh, that we read about in the book of Genesis. It's one of the stories that just like really fascinates me, and I keep coming back to in prayer, um, where Jesus in, or Jesus, where, uh, Jacob is coming back home after swindling his brother swindling his uncle, swindling his family. And finally he has nowhere else to go and he just has to go home and he has to face his brother again. And it's this judgment moment where he's pretty convinced that as soon as he crosses the border into his family's land, his brother's gonna kill him. So he's he's um, sitting and wrestling with this idea. And it's the middle of the night, and he knows the next day he's going to come face to face with his brother. And it says, in the middle of the night, this angelic being shows up and wrestles with Jacob and then gives him a new name, Israel. And that name means the one who has striven with God or wrestled with God and prevailed. So behind that title is the idea that God has come down and wrestled with Jacob. And not only that, like Jacob has won, and the only way that this angelic being, that God, right, this manifestation of God can get away by like cheating. He kicks him in the thigh and puts his thigh out of out of uh, socket. And so in some way, shape or form, once again, God has made himself weak and he's made himself weak to show Jacob that throughout all this striving with his family, all this striving with uh You know, his enemies and his friends has actually been a striving with God. Like he's been wrestling with God this whole time. So God, to show him this, had to make himself weak and wrestled with him and caused this sense of pain. But God allowed himself to be pinned, right? He pins him down and says, bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Like God, the, the wrestling theophany version of God can't get away from Jacob. And so here in the same way, God is thirsty, and he's tapping himself into this story, and he's reaching out to a Samaritan woman, and the Samaritans have this troubled history where they've been striving with God and their siblings, right? their their relatives, the Israelites, the Jews at this point. And this one particular woman who has been ostracized and has had her own struggles. It talks about the taboos of her having five husbands and the man that she's living with now is not her husband. So she's living in sin. She's living in shame. She's living in the midst of all of these uh, taboos as, um, as uh, the author says. Uh, Merikakis says, he says there's a sexual taboo, a racial taboo, a religious taboo, all tapped into this one woman. So she's had a hard life and she's been striving. And she's been not like striving in a good way. She's been wrestling against God, trying to find blessing in different ways. She's been digging deep wells in the wrong places. But she just so happens, even if she's dug her well in the wrong place and she's there at the wrong time, she happens to find Jesus there. Right, um, And so at the bottom of 104, he quotes uh, Janis Joplin, of all people, uh, in saying, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. The same point. So we have solitude, rejection, and exhaustion. Jesus and the woman share the same yoke in this particular moment. Um the next the next page 105 he says this action of making himself needy out of love may well be the greatest and most astounding work of his omnipotence. right He asks her to give him a drink before he gives her the um, the water that will last forever right He makes himself vulnerable. he actually kind of proposes to her in this particular way to leave all this stuff to go back to faithfulness. So at the bottom of 110, he says, the fundamental question here is our tendency to allow ourselves to be seduced by any lover other than God. And if you read the book of Hosea, a uh, prophet Hosea, he marries a prostitute named Gomer who is predictably unfaithful to him and continues to be unfaithful to him. And yet his call in life is to continue to be faithful to her. And each time he's faithful to her, he becomes more and more and more vulnerable, vulnerable to the judgment of other people, vulnerable to the continual hurt that she brings to him. But it's his, it's this, you know, he becomes an icon for what we're seeing here. It's this striving that God does for us that he's embodying here, right? The omnipotent God makes himself, you know, weak, in a certain sense, obviously, still omnipotent and stuff, but he makes himself weak to reach out to us. Okay. So, I think that leaves us with a question, because a lot of people, they look at this discipleship moment as... You know, I'm, I'm dropping my nets and I'm following Jesus and I'm, I'm leaving behind this way of life and usually accompanied in, accompanied with this decision point is like a leaving behind of some big sin that we've been struggling with. Um, you know, for, for young men in college, when I was working with them, a lot of them were stuck in sexual sin and leaving behind a particular manifestation of that sin was a big moment in the sand for them. So like leaving behind pornography or committing to a chaste life with their girlfriends or whatever, was a big part of this, um, following a discipleship, but we can be quite dismayed, uh, when we look at our lives and we see all these other sins that we're still dealing with, just because we have said yes to Jesus and become his disciples doesn't mean that whenever we read this passage, we should see other people that aren't converted in it, but we should see ourself in it. We are still striving with God. In sometimes an unhealthy way. And God is still making himself weak to find us, right? There's a place for that suffering, which is actually the supreme suffering of life is, is fighting against God's will. There's a reason for that. He's put that in our life or he's allowed that he didn't put it. He's allowing that in our life. He's permitting that for a particular purpose. So I want, I want to leave us all with an image. Uh, today to think about. I heard this uh, from a talk from uh, father uh, now Father from Deacon Keating, um, uh, formerly of the Omaha Diocese. I think he's at the seminary now in St. Louis. And at a conference, uh, he was talking about what Jesus came for. And so many, many times, as disciples were kind of dismayed at the amount of suffering and even that, in the in the modern kind of world people talk about discerning joy and ease and seeing that that's god's will and in a certain sense that's that's right but in a certain sense it's not um we're too obsessed with our own comfort so i think sometimes that discernment and say well that doesn't bring me joy therefore it's not of god is actually just a an us our own natural tendencies like if we read time and time again in the old testament especially in the new testament we see the suffering and the real turmoil that people have to go through to follow jesus Um, and so we we can't think that that's just taken away from us and so deacon keating he gave a great image us. He said, too many people think that Jesus came to take our suffering away. And even if we're willing to give lip service to suffering, in the way we actually live our life of discipleship, we think that suffering shouldn't be a part of it and that suffering's a sign of something bad. Where it could be a sign, as Mother Teresa says, of Jesus descending close to us, right? She says, to give us a kiss of intimacy, right? He has to take his crown of thorns. and We have to feel the thorns too, because he's drawing closer to us. And so that suffering sometimes is a sign. It's not that we're supposed to be sadistic or anything, but it could be a sign of Christ drawing near. So the image that um, the deacon gave to us that day was that a lot of people see God as a firefighter that's going to come in and rescue us from a fire. Right? And he's big and he's heroic and he's strong and he breaks through walls and stuff. And while that's true, he said the more fitting images, imagine that the firefighter uh, pulls up and he's discussing with the other firefighters like how to take people out of a burning building and they decide that the building is condemned and there's someone left in there and they're stuck in there and there's nothing that they can do to save them. And instead of saying, well, I don't want to waste my life for their sake because I can do so much more good as a firefighter, this firefighter decides to go in and be with the person as they suffer and die because he doesn't want them to suffer alone. This is what God did, and that's actually a much more beautiful icon, someone that's willing to throw their life away for the love of the other. And I think that that's what this chapter is getting at. So we can place ourselves this week in prayer at this well, Look up in scripture all the different places where you see the well being dug or you see the idea of like water and wellsprings and see what God is doing there. And then try and relate that to your life. I think that could be a very beautiful way to pray with this sixth chapter.
0: Hey everyone, it's Eric Gallagher, the founder of Sushipe. With Advent quickly approaching, I wanted to invite you to join our upcoming book study that will begin on November 29th. Fred and Kara from the organization Draw Near will be leading us through a chapter a week book study on the popular text I Believe in Love, a personal retreat based on the teachings of Saint Therese of Lisieux. Each week, Fred and Kara will offer a simple reflection on a chapter and will guide online discussions through the Sushipe platform. This is an excellent book and opportunity for anyone who is desiring to grow in their spiritual life. Find out more by visiting sushipe.co/study. That's S-U-S-C-I-P-E dot C-O slash study.